the genesis of this week's episode came in a suggestion from a listener stateside, Larry, who dropped an email to suggest how about we go visit Lourdes. Larry, we salute you. Thank you. Um, I would say you've knocked it out of the park with this one, but I'm pretty sure that's the wrong sport. Incidentally, I gather that only one cricketer ever has been able to hit the ball over the pavilion at Lords. It's the 30th of May 2015, I'm Anne Quentin Wolf. This is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a strong throw from your front door. Listener, I'm looking in the stained glass window of a cricketing scene, and that, that seems rather to set the tone for today's venue. We're at Lords, and with me, Neil Robinson. He's the libraries and research manager for the MCC. Hi, Neil. Hello there. I'm already picking up on lots of busts, stained glass windows, memorabilia. It feels like the sort of place that a cricketing person would need to visit once in their life. Well, it's, it's known as the home of cricket, Lords. Um, and here in the museum, we like to think of ourselves as the home of cricket heritage. We have a museum that isn't just about Lords and MCC. It's about the whole of cricket history right around the world from the very beginnings of the game to the, to the modern day. So there's something here for, for everyone, really, who wants to learn about the game of cricket and its place in society. Which we're going to be doing. In the background research that I was doing, I discovered that this place goes back a lot further than I was imagining it might, back to the late 1700s, I think. That's right. We've been on this site since 1814, so 201 years. We celebrated our bicentenary of the present ground, which is the third Lord's Ground last year. Uh, But the club itself, uh, MCC, goes back to 1787. So it's one of the oldest cricket clubs in existence. Now, what was that with Islington? Um, there was a club called the White Conduit Club based in Islington in the, the 1700s which was where all the, the most prominent gentlemen of the day liked to play their cricket but it was a very open sort of ground and the, the journey from the centre of town out to Islington could be quite dangerous at times, there were a lot of footpads, pickpockets and highwaymen around so the, the gentlemen of that club wanted somewhere a little more private, a little more secure to play their cricket so they, they hired a chap called Thomas Lord who was a, a general attendant and a ground bowler at the club but also a bit of an entrepreneur a wine merchant as well uh, and they, they indemnified him against all losses and set him up and asked him to find a new ground where they could play their cricket slightly more securely and he ultimately found the, the first site of the first Lord's Ground on what's now Dorset Square, just off Oxford Street in the west end of London. Ah, so it wasn't here straight away? It wasn't here straight away. We, we were there until the early 1800s when the rents were going up in that part of London. London was obviously expanding rapidly at the time. Uh, so he moved from the Portman Estate, where we originally were, to the Eyre Estate, just a little bit further up what's now Lisson Grove, roughly where the Regent's Canal crosses over Lisson Grove. And he was there uh, until 18. 18- 14, and 1813 rather, when uh, Parliament announced that the new Regent's Canal would be cut right through where the new ground was. I don't think anyone was terribly upset about that because it really wasn't a very popular place. I think the facilities there weren't very good. There wasn't a proper tavern, which is something that's always been quite popular with the members and, and all visitors to the ground. Uh, so Thomas Lord quite happily went to the Air Estate, 
relinquished the lease on this ground and got not just the opportunity of a lease on a new site, this particular site, but also got some quite handsome compensation at the time. So he was he was very much a, a, a beneficiary of that particular government decision to put the Regent's Canal through his ground. For those not familiar with the area, we should say probably that St John's Wood is... Well, uh, the, the thing that struck me immediately upon exiting the tube station is how many trees there are around here. Yeah, it still retains that sense of a slightly rural suburb, even though it's been enclosed by the expansion of London over the last 200 years. Once, once you get out of central London, past Regent's Park... Yeah, we're starting to open out a little bit. If you look at the early illustrations of the ground, it really was open land, very much on the fringes of London. Um, and it's it still got that you know, faintly genteel look to it. It's kind of remarkable, really, especially considering you've got the Wellington Hospital on one side of you. It doesn't feel like you're overshadowed by that at all. This place really still uh, dominates the area. It, it's one of the remarkable things about Lords that however much it's changed, and if you look around the architecture, there's a lot of very new things here. Look at the Media Centre, which is one of our most famous architectural innovations. Um, some people have said it looks rather like a spaceship has landed just, just off the outfield at Lords. And, and yet, however many changes are made, it always seems to, to retain that individual sense of being Lord's Cricket Ground. And I think it's probably because there's, there's never been a single comprehensive redevelopment of the ground. It's always happened stage by stage, just as the current proposed redevelopment is happening. But we're changing one, one stand at a time. It's not like we're, we've ever knocked the whole ground down and started again, as, as some other sports facilities have done. We're going to be taking a look around at uh, particularly artefacts from the past of the ground and of the club. But we should say as well, uh, I think that the club is very much still an active one. There is still sport going on here aplenty. Definitely. Many people know we just finished a test match here against New Zealand, reckoned to be one of the most exciting and fascinating in recent years. But we don't just play the, the big matches here at Lords. We as MCC ourselves we are um, a very active probably the most active playing cricket club in the world we play more than 500 matches a year we've got men's and women's 11s we also stage matches um, for Middlesex County Cricket Club so a lot of county cricket goes on here and club cricket takes place here as well to a certain extent particularly at the end of the, the, the season when the Cross Arrows Club which is a club for MCC members and staff play matches on the nursery ground which is our secondary cricket ground here at Lords, against a variety of cricket clubs uh, in September and early October so the whole variety of, of levels of, of cricket is played right here at Lords. Well let's make a start and I mentioned that stained glass window this was unveiled by John Major in 93 to commemorate the restoration of the MCC museum it's a very clever stained glass design the room we're in there's a big uh, staircase that splits midway and takes us up onto galleried levels we can see that there are exhibitions going on up there where are you going to take us first Um, I'm going to take you upstairs so we can have a look at the famous ashes urn which is probably our most famous artifact here in the museum a marbly stony staircase. The place is so overflowing with busts that there is actually a small gathering of busts in one of the nooks under the staircase, very much like the people who gather in the kitchen at a house party. I'm sure that's exactly how they describe it on the website here as well. And we're up to the next level. (laughs) The carpeting here is made to look like grass. And you can, of course, see straight away that this has undergone a beautiful renovation very elegant glass screen across one part of the room and we stand before something the size of which is uh, no match for its consequence in sport yes this is the famous ashes urn which uh, stands just four and a half inches high without 
without its base. I, I really never knew that. I, I thought it was an enormous... There's either side there are jugs and trophies about two foot tall. I, re, I really thought we'd be looking at something about that size. Yes, it, it, it does surprise a lot of people just how small it is. Uh, I think people know when, when they see the, the actual trophy for the Ashes series, which is a Waterford crystal representation of the urn, that's more the sort of size you would expect. But the urn itself... It's, it's never been presented as a trophy. It, it's a, a, a personal memento, a, a symbol of the way that the legend of the ashes began, which is a story I'll be telling you in a minute. Uh, well, there's no time like the present. <laughs> the ashes urn really started as a joke. The whole legend of the ashes was, was a joke. In 1882, Australia defeated England on English soil for the very first time. And it was a very thrilling match, so thrilling that apparently one of the spectators gnawed through the handle of his umbrella... <laughs> Maybe and, and apocryphal. Then, and then what told, told everybody about it? <laughs> well, perhaps he had to tell his dentist afterwards. I'm not quite sure. That's the legend anyway. Uh, and another gentleman, rather more unfortunately, um, dropped dead of a, a pulmonary embolism due to the, the, the excitement of the, the final innings. Um, England lost that match quite narrowly and the Australians were fated as heroes. Uh, you know, they were cheered all the way back to their hotel in the West End. And... It was a great shock to the English public. They'd been, been beaten in Australia before, the England team, but they'd never been beaten on home soil, and it really was quite a shock. And a few days later, uh, a gentleman uh, placed a spoof obituary in the Sporting Times, which was a popular newspaper of the time, uh, declaring the death of English cricket and announcing that the body would be cremated and the ashes taken to Australia. Now, this wasn't just a joke. It was a sly dig at the fact that cremation at the time was illegal in Victorian England and there was a campaign afoot to try and get it legalised because all these huge cemeteries they had in Victorian cities were rapidly getting overcrowded and we needed some other way of disposing of the dead and this, this was a way of you know, acknowledging the shock to the, the system that the defeat of the English cricket team had been and using it to promote this campaign to legalise cremation anyway, the joke caught on there was an England team going out to Australia that very winter led by the Honourable Ivo Bly, who later became Lord Darnley, um, and he declared that he was going out to Australia to regain the ashes. Now, of course, there were no ashes. There was no physical object that, that uh, represented the, this legend that had, that had been born. Um, nevertheless, that's what he said he was going to do, and the Australian captain, Billy Murdoch, similarly declared that he would defend the ashes on behalf of Australia. So the stage was set for the first ever ashes battle. Bly's team set sail... And before the, um, the three tests that were scheduled even took place, uh, Ivo and the amateurs from his team, um, they visited a place in Sunbury in Victoria called Rupertswood House where they played a scratch game against some estate workers. Now, naturally, they were much better cricketers than the estate workers on, on the Sunbury estate, so they won the match. And the lady of the house, Lady Janet Clark, decided that by having won this match... Ivo's team had regained the honour of English cricket and should therefore be awarded the Ashes. Well, she found this object somewhere. We don't know quite where, quite what it was. It may have been a, a perfume bottle or a, uh, an ointment jar that she had on her dressing table. Quite what its origins were, we really don't know. Nevertheless, she brought it down. A bale that was used in, in that match was burned and the Ashes placed inside the urn and it was presented to Ivo Belize, the Ashes of English cricket. Well, there's another side to that joke as well. Not only did it represent the winning of that particular match, it also acknowledged the fact that during his visit to Rupertswood, 
Ivo Bly had met the love of his life, the Clark family governess, Florence Rose Morphy, whom he would eventually marry and take back to England, and she would become the Countess Darnley when he inherited his brother's title. So for the Darnley family, this object wasn't just so associated with the origins of Anglo-Australian cricket and that great rivalry we all know today. It was actually a personal memento that reminded them of the time when they met and fell in love. Ivo, the English cricket captain, Florence, the ordinary Australian girl. So for me, the Ashes story isn't about something that you know, divides England and Australia and should be a great cause of conflict. It's actually something that shows how England and Australia have been brought together. <laughs> I, I love that story. I feel you may be a lone voice in that sense of unity uh, on sporting occasions. Possibly this summer I may be, yes. <laughs> But I think it's something we should always bear in mind. The reason it's, it, we have such a great rivalry on the cricket field and in other sports as well is because we are so closely linked as nations. And that's, that's why it means so much to beat each other. It's like two brothers um, competing on the sporting field. There are particular cricketing nations that come to mind straight away. Is that reflected in the uh, sort of people who walk through your front door? Uh, very much so. If, if you look at the, um, the statistics relating to the Lord's Tour, which is the main way that people on non-match days access the museum, you'll find a surprising proportion of them are actually from the Indian subcontinent, particularly India. Um, one of the things we try to do in recent years in the museum is to try and make sure that our collections reflect the global spread of cricket as widely as possible. So not only are we not just Lords and MCC, we're not just England and Australia. We have a large and growing selection of, of items relating to India, to Pakistan, to Sri Lanka, the West Indies, to all the nations that play cricket to any serious degree. And we like to think that wherever anyone comes from when they visit the museum they'll find something that's of relevance to them that, that speaks to them about the way they experience cricket whether it be as a uh, a spectator watching the great players at home and here at Lords, or, or simply as a player um, because we also have artifacts um, not always on display but we always have artifacts relating to the lower levels of cricket club cricket county cricket as well this can only be a delicate question i'm sure but of course there's sorts of places that you've just mentioned the common theme there is english colonialism one, mm. one thinks that the spread of cricket might be in no small part connected with that does cricket therefore have any negative connotations in the eyes of anyone in those areas is it a, a leftover from a uh, an unwelcome past in in any respect? I don't think so. If you look at the... There's, it's undeniable that, that cricket was used by the British Empire to spread British attitudes and try and spread a, an idea of the British way of life. Team sports were an integral part of that. But I think if you look at the, the nations who have taken cricket on board as, as a result of that, um, that export, none of them have rejected it as a result of British colonialism coming to an end. Perhaps the only place where cricket was exported to where it hasn't really caught on is the United States of America. And it remained a, a popular sport in the USA for a good hundred years after, after the end of, of the British Empire there. It was really only the, the American Civil War, the growth of baseball towards the end of the 19th century that, that began to take away cricket's dominance and lead it to become a minority sport in the USA. But if you look at India... You know, they imported the game of cricket from England, but they very much made it their own now. If, if you go to a, an, an IPL cricket match, it's a very different experience from, from coming to watch a test match at Lords. There's, there's much more what, what they call tamasha, the experience, the exuberance, the, the glamour of, of Indian cricket. It's a very different feeling. 
but it shows how cricket can be adaptable. Uh, now, now, is that on the field, or are we talking about uh, a bit of a carnival spirit going on around the match? Um, it's a bit of both, really. Both the, the, the way the game is played. Um, all nations have their own particular spirit in the way they play the game. You look, look back to the, the early days of the Great West Indies site in the 1950s and 60s, and they they were known as Calypso cricketers because they played the game that they weren't defensive they always wanted to attack they, they played the game with the joy of playing the game um, and, and similarly it, India has its own way of playing the game they, the spectators like to see an attacking aggressive way of playing cricket which is partly I think due to the, the way the one day game has taken off there as a result of them winning the World Cup here in 1983 which seems to suggest that the English style is a bit more what technical strategic Traditionally, I think that's very, very much the case. English cricket has been perhaps seen as, as more, more technical, more... Um, you know, if, if you're coaching a player in the traditional English way, you'd probably look at, at uh, instructing him in the art of defending before you instructed him in, in the art of attacking the ball, which is not something that, that are, the great English players have always paid attention to. If you look at someone like W.G. Grace, the first really great cricketer of all nations... He was well known as a man who didn't like to defend. He liked to hit every ball. He, he didn't like leaving the ball at all. A, a lot of players will, will leave balls they don't have to play that, that aren't you know, directly attacking the stumps. They can just let them go through. Um, there was a, a wicketkeeper of the time who famously said that he loved keeping wicket against WG because he had nothing to do. The ball never came through to him. WG just hit the ball every time. So it's, it's not always absolutely true, but I think it's, it's definitely the case that, that traditionally English cricketers have been more security-minded, shall we put it. <laughs> I've, um, I don't know whether it's being scurrilously iconoclastic in a place like this to touch on some of WG Grace's other uh, personal habits, style of sportsmanship. Well, there was the famous case of him telling an umpire they're here to watch me bat, not, not you umpire. But he was acutely aware of the fact that the paying public, a lot of the time, had paid simply to watch him. If he got out early, there were, there were going to be a lot of disappointed punters out there. So that, that has to be borne in mind when, when we judge WG for actions like that. Uh, the other, the other um, accusation against him was, was that of shamaterism, where he was an amateur, technically, not supposed to be earning his main living from the game. He was also a, a family doctor in, in Bristol. But his expenses for playing cricket often were in excess of what the professionals were being paid to play cricket. Now, th- there's no denying that, but against it, the financial independence that that income he had from cricket gave him um, allowed him to work very generously with the poor in the districts he worked in as a doctor. So the poor of Bristol were, in a way, the beneficiaries of his largesse on the cricket field. Well, we're going to move on, I think. Where's our next port of call? Should we move up to the library now? Absolutely. Through the corner of my eye, listener, I've been keeping an eye on two fellows who I assume were listening into the recording. One of them dressed in what I would regard as traditional MCC garb, the scarlet and gold tie and hat band around the straw boater. Another fellow who I presumed was working here in a tricorn hat, sort of highwayman garb. I've just realised they haven't moved for rather a long time. These are um, two mannequins who have taken part in various exhibitions for us over the years. One of, one of them is dressed up as the typical MCC member, which I'm sure will not endear me to many <laughs> MCC members. He's, uh, he's drifting off rather gradually with a glass of pims in his hand, 
Um, the other man was actually representing uh, an 18th century scorer. You'll see he's actually notching with a knife on a stick, and that's how scoring in cricket matches originated, before somebody came up with the bright idea of using a pencil and paper. In fact, runs were quite often referred to as notches in the early days. One of the big uh, symbols of cricket for me is the scoreboards, you know, the things that look like departure boards at the train station. When did they come in? They're a a 19th century innovation. Um, They started to be produced en masse during the the great boom in cricket clubs and and club cricket, organised cricket really in the 19th century. So there there was a market there for people being able to see what the score was as it progressed. Well, you'll have heard the, uh, the sound change as we came into the library books do that. And this is the 1950s, and uh, very pleasant it is too. Uh, green Chesterfield sofas, uh, thick green carpet to uh, maintain that illusion that we're really a little bit outside as well on the pitch. And uh, what sort of material is covered here and who are your users? Here in the MCC Library, we, we have the, the largest publicly available collection of printed material related to cricket. I say publicly available. We don't know what may be lurking in private collections anywhere, but I've, I've never come across a, a larger collection than this one. We have uh, more than 18,000 titles here, mostly relating to cricket, but also relating to, to other sports such as real tennis, which is still played here at Lords. Oh, yes, I saw that going on. They're not with uh, tennis rackets as we know them. No, they're, they're very slightly uh, different. They're, they're more like old-fashioned tennis rackets, smaller than the, the modern carbon fibre ones. Um, and the balls are slightly different as well. We hand-stitch them here at Lords. The, the tennis office staff are, are very skilled at, uh, at making the equipment of the game. And we have one of the finest courts here that, that is used um, for many, many important tournaments. And it's indoors as well. And it does, in a way, look like the missing link between the sort of thing that you see at uh, Hampton Court Palace and the modern game. Well, yes, it was the predominant form of tennis until lawn tennis came along in the 19th century. Um, so it has, it has a tremendously long history. And in fact... Um, Within the MCC Library collection, the the oldest book we have dates from 1555 and is in fact a, an, an Italian book on real tennis. I'm not sure whether we've covered this, with this being the initially mobile home of British cricket. When did cricket itself originate? What was the starting point? Well, that's one of the mysteries. No one really knows. Um, cricket wasn't a game that was invented at any point. It simply evolved. At what point it became the game that we recognise as cricket is, is difficult to say. Probably the most commonly acknowledged point where a printed reference to cricket is agreed to relate to this game dates from the end of the 16th century where court records in Guildford referred to a game uh, that was spelled as cricket was being played on a patch of ground. This was referring back to the, the witness's youth, so sometime around 1550. Beyond that, it's not until the 18th century that we start getting the rules of the game, the laws of the game, codified. So it's only from that point that we can really see the uh, track the evolution of how the game is played. Prior to that, we're relying upon very, very static and very few illustrations to show what, what sort of bats, what sort of balls were being used to, to play the game with. But really from 1727, when the first articles of agreement for a, a an individual pair of matches between the Duke of Richmond and a Mr Broderick were written down, and those have survived in the Duke of Richmond's archives, um, through to the first widely distributed laws of the game in 1744. That's, that's where we can really see the game of cricket 
begin to evolve into the game we know today. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you can you can sort of imagine how somebody would have come up with the initial uh, moves, you know, walking through a forest and uh, throwing a conqueror at somebody holding a stick or something along those lines. But getting from there to uh, anything approaching a match requires quite a bit of organisation and uh, lots of people getting involved. So it seems like uh, there would have had to have been a leap somewhere there. There, there certainly was a leap. The game was quite popular amongst rural workers. But what really gave it the impetus to become a mass participation, mass observation sport was gambling. There was a huge um, mania for gambling amongst the aristocracy in the 18th century. And it wasn't that long before they realised that they could actually bet on cricket matches. And it got to the point very quickly where one aristocrat would bet against another that his team would win a match. And there are astonishing sums of money really being quoted as, as, as being bet on for, for these matches at 500 or 1,000 guineas even, which was a vast sum of money in the time, a small fortune. So naturally, when you've got that amount of money riding on a game of cricket, you want to make sure that both sides are playing to the same set of rules. And that's when you start to get rules, laws, as we call them in cricket, because they're that much more important, being written down and passed around and generally played to. Now seems like a perfect opportunity, really, to ask a question that has uh, bugged me without me knowing it for a long time. We're looking at one of the bookshelves here that contains a number of volumes of Wisden, which is a publication that I've heard plenty about. But what is in there? Wisden is the longest-running annual cricket book and probably the longest-running annual publication in sport anywhere in the world. It was first published in 1864... And again, it comes from around that time when cricket was becoming more organised. Regular programmes of fixtures were, were beginning to take place. County cricket was beginning to emerge. Professionals were starting to, to inhabit the game. You know, people were actually getting paid for playing cricket as their only source of, of real income. Um, if you look at the very first volume of Wisden in 1864, it, it had really quite a small amount of cricket content. You, you had all sorts of things such as the, the dates of construction and the lengths of, of the, all the canals in Great Britain and Ireland. You had the phases of the moon. You had all, all sorts of miscellaneous information that might be of use to a, to a gentleman who had this book at, at hand. It was a pocket-sized book, together with the cricket scores from the previous season. And then as cricket became more and more popular and more and more games were played, the book became bigger and bigger, to the point where... The biggest problem the editor of Wisdom has these days is how on earth to cram it all into something that can still be published and carried around. Well, I still can't imagine what the content actually is, though. Could we have a look? Um, yeah, by all means. So if, if we look at the very first edition and the current edition side by side, they're more or less the same size in terms of height and width. But the depth, the number of pages in them has increased Remarkably, if you yes, look, you, you could you could successfully commit murder with the 2015 edition. Yeah, if you look at the first edition, we go up to page 112. If we look at the 2015 edition, the 152nd, um, it goes up to page 1,520. <laughs> We've got the uh, the latest one to hand here. What's in there? Well, you'll find all of the first-class cricket that's played in England. You'll have all the scores of that. You'll have reports on all the Test matches all the, the major one-day matches. Um, there'll be reports from each county. Uh, there's reports from cricket around the world, so cricket in Australia, South Africa, and even from smaller emerging countries such as Afghanistan. Um, one of the nice bits in, in Wisdom you'll get is an index of unusual occurrence, sort of elk stopped play, that sort of thing. 
they've been collected together and published in an anthology called Unusual Occurrences from Wisdom as well. So that's that's one of the nice little offshoots of wisdom that you'll get from time to time. Um, you'll also get interesting statistical information. Yes, there's a lot as, of tables we're seeing uh, going past here. So you, you can immediately look up all of the uh, career records of everyone who's played test cricket in the history of the game since 1877. Births and deaths and their, their sort of statistical averages as batsmen and bowlers. So it's, it's really, it's not a book that you would ever sit down and read from cover to cover, but there is plenty of re- reading material in there. And I think one of the first things that people pick it up for every, every, um, every year are the essays that take, take place at the, at the front of the book. There are interesting essays on, the, uh, on current issues relating to the game. And you know, this year, for example, we've got a, a retrospective on W.G. Grace, who died 100 years ago this year, and also the uh, this very tragic death of, of the Australian batsman Philip Hughes a few months ago on the field in Australia. So it, it's full of great writing, as well as important statistics. Well, this is puncturing my imagined understanding of what cricket is all about, and I think my idea had sort of come about through uh, fairly fleeting encounters with cricket. The most formative one, I think, was when I was engrossed in a, a novel on the way home from work one day and people started shouting at me and I discovered that I was in the middle of a game of cricket by accident. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the the sense I've got from particularly cricket being televised in pubs, although that you, you see a little less of that now, I think, but I got the idea that it was quite a relaxed thing, people sort of casually drinking in the pub, glancing up every now and again at the score, and on the screen, whenever the camera panned to the crowd, you seem to see a similar sort of thing, mm-hmm. people uh, having a glass of beer and, well, in, in fact, doing exactly what was going on in the pub. And there's also always been that sense with me, whenever I tune into cricket commentary, it always gives the impression that I've come in late in a huge novel. So they're always saying, well, it's the third day of the 15th test of the fourth week. (laughs) And um, I always feel like it would be great if I'd arrived at the beginning of this. You should try it sometime. Um, As a matter of fact, the reason we have all these books in here is because of the nature of the way the game has been played. It's a game with natural pauses both for players and for spectators, which leaves room for conversation, and conversation generates opinion and ideas, which inevitably lead down to being committed on paper. So, yes, it's all part of the experience of, of being at a cricket match. If, if you're a player, uh, ask any batsman who's played the game at a significant level, and they'll tell you, 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 can't, you can't just concentrate for eight, nine hours, however long you have to be batting. You face a ball, and then you switch off for a moment until you've got to face the next ball. Similarly, as a spectator, it's very difficult to just sit there and be focused entirely on on what's happening out there on the field of play for the six or seven hours of a day's play. You need those little pauses to talk to your neighbour, to go to the bar, to get a drink, to stroll around the ground. Now, inevitably, when you do that, you might miss something crucial, but I guess that's part of the experience too. And it, it really does add something to the game that you've you've got this ability to dip in and out and there are moments where the times when you'll be rooted to your seat with your eyes glued to the action for quite a long period of time and then there'll be moments when it it calms down and you can you can think of other things and you can have a chat and you can go for a walk and because it's got that little bit of variety and you never know quite when it's suddenly going to burst into life again that's part of the attraction of the game and part of what makes it such an unexpected and thrilling game to watch at its very best. 
And that does seem to... Well, it almost, it almost becomes lifestyle rather than the, the way one might think about a game of football or, or uh, something of that sort. Yeah. And that doesn't feel to me like the way in which certainly this part of the world is headed. Everything seems to be faster and louder and mm. more packageable. And cricket doesn't really seem to lend itself to that. Has that been a problem that cricket has had to face? Uh, certainly. Cricket has adapted uh, to, to the modern world by innovating in the way it's played. Um, and by the way it attracts its audiences if you look at the development first of one day cricket back in the 1960s starting out as 60 55 50 over cricket and then more recently the innovation of 2020 where you can get an entire game packed into two to three hours that means it's much easier for people to to come in and get a bite-sized chunk of that cricket experience in an evening after work or on a weekend much as you would do with a football match and is that largely commercially driven? Well, it's driven by the reality that cricket is a, is a business as well as a sport, and it needs to make money. We've, we've, got, we've got 18 first-class counties in the country. That means 18 professional teams that need to pay their staff and their players. And they need to, it's an expensive business running a cricket ground as well. Um, if, you, if you look overseas, places like Australia, for example, most of the grounds there are multi-sports venues. The, the MCG, one of the biggest grounds in the world, they have cricket in the summer and they have... Aussie rules football in the winter so they've got year-round income we have to be a little bit more innovative here we, we we haven't tended to to share facilities with other sports in this country um for whatever reason which means we've we've got to get the money in during the cricket season from you know, spectator sport and also uh, places like lords we have to we have to look to ancillary activities such as an events business, which we do very successfully here. It's a terrific place to come and, and have, a, have a lunch, have a, you know, a grand dinner. We even do weddings here now in the pavilion. It's, it's a wonderful place to come for that special occasion. In terms of the MCC library, we're not just here as a members facility. We're members only on match days. But on non-match days, we, we increasingly get more and more people every year coming in to, to look at our collection and discover the, the wonderful stories, not just about cricket, but about how cricket and society relate to each other over the years so you get people looking at the the very early 18th century cricket publications poems celebrating individual matches that show you how the game evolved from something that was just a rural pursuit to a mass participation sport that the the highest in the land were were patronizing through to the the very modern cricket publications the tour books the sporting autobiographies things like um kevin peterson's kp the autobiography which um which was actually on the short list for our Book of the Year award here at Lords this spring didn't win it unfortunately, but uh, it was on the short list, and I, I believe Audible have a have a, a version which is one of their best selling audio books. That sir is smooth. That's uh, an ex- expert delivery, <laughs> and we've got good news on the Audible front as well as, as if getting a free audio book if you sign up for a thirty day free trial weren't good enough. The extra good news is that if you signed up already for Audible uh, more than twelve months ago, you are entitled to another free book, which could include KP. We're going to move on, I think, to our next point in the tour. Where are we going? We'll pop down now to the Coronation Garden. We have teamed up with audible.co.uk to offer you a free audiobook of your choice. All you have to do is register for one month free trial to claim your free audiobook. There are over 150,000 to choose from. The 30-day free trial means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel in the trial period. And there's more good news. If you trialed the service over 12 months ago, the good people at Audible are giving you a chance to get your hands on another audiobook for free. So sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist. 
You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and we're enjoying a balmy day at Lords. There is a post-test match ambience going on, a bit of recovery among the staff and recuperation, I would say, happening here. I'm with Neil Robinson. He is the Library and Research Manager for the MCC, and he's brought me to see a sprinkler. <laughs> yes, Quentin. We're standing in the Coronation Garden, which is, was laid out in 1953, the year of the Queen's Coronation, the same year the museum first opened. It's directly outside the museum. And it's, it's really the area which is the centre of the social life of Lords during a Test match. When, when the members come in on a morning, they will, well in advance of the start of play, first of all, they'll, they'll bag their seat in the pavilion. Then they'll come here and lay out their picnic blanket, um, stake a claim to a patch of turf, and this is where you will find right through beyond the close of play until they're finally kicked out of the ground long into the evening. People will be gathering, drinking, eating, socialising, talking. There's a lot more to a test match here at Lords than simply the cricket that, that takes place out there on the main ground. There's a lot of territorial behaviour going on there. What's the etiquette? How do people stake their claim? Well, first come, first served, really. Um, there's, there's a very nice champagne bar here. There's plenty of benches, so if you don't manage to get a, a place to, to pop your blanket down into your picnic hamper and uh, crack open the champagne at 11 o'clock, then uh, there are plenty of other places to, to sit and while away the sunshine hours or indeed the, the rain breaks between play. So you've got to work as a team, it sounds like. You couldn't come here on your own and, and manage your plot in the stadium and here. Well, I think you'll find that when the blankets are laid out, people do leave them. They then go off to, to watch the cricket. They come back and... Yep, nothing really ever seems to go missing. Uh, nothing ever seems to be taken over in terms of people's plots. It, it's all very, very civilised and uh, handled in a, dare I say, gentlemanly affair. This is very reassuring. <laughs> yes, it is, really. <laughs> I, I just wanted to check in with you on a fact, and just uh, because issues of fairness are raising their head just there. The expression, a level playing field, I think we've uh, imported that from sport and is in common usage. Is this true, this rumour that I've heard, that the Lords is not a level playing field? It is indeed true. Uh, yes, we have a slope from the north northeast of the, the, the ground down to the southwest of about eight foot six in total from one side to the other. So it, it's certainly not a level playing field, and it's something that players coming here for the first time do have to adapt to because the ball will move down the slope more easily than it will move up the slope. So, for example, a bowler that naturally moves the ball away from a right-handed batsman might want to bowl from the nursery end where he would naturally get the aid of the slope in, in doing that. <laughs> so, so, so obvious, nobody's thought of correcting the deficiency. Well, we, we have done. Uh, we had the, the entire outfield relayed just over 10 years ago in order to put new drainage in. And it was certainly considered at the time that we might think about trying to level out the slope to some degree. But in the end, we, we decided it was all part of the charm of Lords. There is a certain eccentricity that goes with cricket and also the Englishness of this place. I think in England we all love an eccentric, don't we? And having a little bit of eccentricity about the outfield, about the fact that it, it's not, not in, entirely level, is all part of the charm of being here. We're fast approaching the end of our time here at Lords. Can we squeeze something else in? Yes, I, I think we'll just pop into the pavilion for a few minutes and uh, have a look in the long room. Now, the long room, this is one of the things I think I've heard about. Uh, 
I'll let you into a secret. I was preparing for this interview and wondering what I should be wearing. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I had this idea that there was some very, very strict rule about dress code. Is, is there anything in my concern? I, th- I think you're fine on a non-match day. On a match day, a jacket and tie and tailored trousers would be obligatory. Um, but obviously, the, the, the pavilion is a key part of the Lord's Tour. And we can't expect you know, people coming off a busload of tourists to, to you know, don a jacket and tie and uh, tailored trousers and smart shoes just to come in and, uh, and walk through the pavilion for a few minutes. That would be uh, a little bit too much. So we relaxed the dress code on non-match days. Um, I, I still tend to come in in a suit myself, but uh, that's all part of working at Lords, I feel. The room we've entered boasts three chandeliers, long tables befitting the long room. One side, the windows look out onto the pitch, and the space capsule that we were discussing earlier hovers above the other end of the ground. It's really one of the best views in cricket. You get a lovely view of pretty much all the stands. Um, and even though normally when, when you're at ground level watching cricket, you sometimes don't get quite as good a view as you do from a more elevated position. Somehow in the long room, the view is terrific. Yeah, it really is. The only problem is on a really busy match day, there are quite a lot of members standing in front of you. So you've got to get in here pretty quickly to, to bag a place at, at the front. And you'll see that there are two rows of, of chairs running the full length of the room, slightly lower at the front, slightly higher at the back, two long tables behind them. Um, and there's a gap through the middle leading out to the double doors. That's where the players walk out onto the field. There are two doors in the corner, corners of the room. The players come down from their dressing rooms, down the staircase, and in through those doors, and then they'll, they'll walk along behind the tables. When it's really busy in here, there'll they'll have to be a, a rope roping off the members from the players, but they'll really be running the gauntlet, as it were. It, it can be quite noisy in here, particularly at the end of a match. Um, I remember when Australia lost here in, uh, in 2009, um, and Ricky Ponting came back off the field knowing that he would never play another test match here, the Australian captain, and he got such a warm reception which he might not have been expecting. He got a tremendous reception from the, the members in here. It can go, it can go two ways. Well, you, I was going to ask. <laughs> you, you, can, you can come back off the field um, having had a very successful game and you'll, you'll get very warm applause and it, it will probably be something that will linger in your mind as one of the highlights of your career for a long, long time. Conversely, if you've not had such a good game, if you've gone out there as a batsman, got a duck and you're coming back through this room rather sooner than you hoped... Um, it can be quite silent and you know, that's probably something that will also linger in your mind for a while but for the wrong reasons. And is it only the home team that comes through here or do the, the, the opposition also come through by the same? No, both, both teams come through this, this very room. Are, um, are we good hosts in respect of the comments or lack of them as they come through? Absolutely. I, th- I think the, the crowd here, both members and non-members, are, are known for their love of cricket and for their appreciation of good cricket. I think one of the things that we, we all enjoyed about the match we've just had against New Zealand was it wasn't, it wasn't a walkover. It was a really tough game of cricket. Both teams played fantastic cricket. And we all enjoyed it all the more for that. And it was, it's really what, that, that kind of game is what gets us into the, the sport in the first place. All of which might tempt anyone listening to think about signing up as a member, which I looked into. Um, and I, I think I've worked out that if you wanted to attend Glyndebourne and become a member here, the two waiting times combined is essentially a, f- a full adult lifespan. <laughs> It's, it's not the easiest of, uh, of clubs to get into from the point of view of waiting times, for sure. Tw- 27 years, I guess. Yes, it has gone up quite significantly in, in the last four or five years. It used to be just, just over 20, but it's, it's gone up quite a lot recently. <laughs> even then, yes, uh, 
for someone of my age in mid 40s you, you do rather think how much benefit you would get from it when when the time finally came are you, are you a, that's a silly question but are you a member no i'm not a member so um, you need to hang on to the job i do <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm very lucky to work here it's it's a lovely place to work um it's terrific to be in this room and to be able to you know, to come in here every working day uh, it's it's a remarkable privilege to work in a place like this and one certainly that I wouldn't give up very lightly. When did your interest in cricket begin? Was it, was it something that was already there when you first started working here? Oh yes. Uh, my job as library and research manager means that I'm, I don't just look after the, the books in the library. I also have to research the contents of the books and I have to research other matters relating to cricket as well. So I have to be part librarian, part historian really. And that means it's a job you can't do without an appreciation of the game and a certain amount of knowledge of the history of the game, which I thought was pretty good when I came here, but quickly I learned it wasn't as good as it needed to be. I've learned an awful lot over the nine years I've been here, and I think that's true for anyone who works here. You get a lot of people, a lot of different things go on at Lords. You've got catering staff, estate staff who look after the, the buildings and the grounds. Not all of them come here with, with much idea of of what it is to work at a cricket ground and what the sport means but I think it does seep into you after a while Well let's come to a close on just about that note I wonder if there's one final uh, nugget maybe from the history of the place or the organisation that we could throw in as a close Well I will just say that you know, anyone can come here and appreciate the history of Lords. You know, the Lords Tour runs almost every day of the year. We can't run tours on major match days, but it's a great place to come and visit. There's lots to discover. One of the things I like about it is the fact that it's called Lords, and yet the very last act that Thomas Lord, the man after whom the ground is named, did on this ground was to try and sell it for housing development in 1823 <laughs> and it was only because one of the prominent members of the club a man called William Ward gave him a cheque for £5,400 that um, a third of the outfield didn't disappear um, after which it would have been pretty difficult to play cricket here Well thanks for taking the time to show us around if the listener wants to get on a tour of the place what's the easiest way to do that? You can check the Lord's website full details of, of the tours of Lord's are available there all right, well, Neil Robinson, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Neil Robinson. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf.